and honor and praise of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And as you're seated, uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew. And we will be in Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 9. Although I'll be reading at the beginning 1 through 10. So again, Matthew 5, we'll start off reading verses 1 through 10. I want to thank our choir and I want to thank our orchestra, our bells, Keeley, all of you for uh, playing today. Because, you know, it really lights up our hearts for uh, the celebration of Christmas and to consider these songs, which have been, you know, sung for hundreds of years. And they really communicate you know, what God has done in sending his son to the world. It, it's just, it lights up our hearts and li- lives up our souls as we, we look to God during this time. And it really gets me looking forward to tonight and to the Christmas cantata at 6 o'clock. Um, I know we have a few college students who are back, and we're so glad to see you. It's good to see people I haven't seen for a little bit. And um, it's, it's been good to see between this service and uh, the last service, so many people have been been back. Um you know, as we come to uh, this Advent season, as we move towards Christmas, you know, some might think that we should do special Christmas sermons or special Christmas series. I just like to look through, you know, just kind of what is the next section God has for us and what we're already preaching. Because, you know, every page of the Bible speaks to Jesus. And what we want to do is we look inside the scriptures, see, you know, maybe how does even this scripture we're going to look at today point to why he came? Point to the reason for Jesus coming um, to our world. And so that's what we're going to see today out of Matthew chapter 5 um, while seeing, you know, what, what does Jesus teach? What does he say? But also what does that point us to, the, to what Christmas is about and, um, and, and our need of a Savior? So we're in Matthew 5. Again, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available in the foyer. I just encourage you to pick one up, follow along. We jump in a couple passages throughout. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, this is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we ask that you would examine our hearts. And Father, you would lead us from the paths which lead away from you to the path of life, which is in Jesus Christ. Show us Jesus Show us the way he's called us to be. Help us become the people you want us to be. Father, would you preach the sermon that you would have preached, Father, into our hearts from your word. We ask you your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today as we focus on uh, verses 7 through 9, uh, we want to focus on uh, the way that we interact with others, especially where we're going to be narrowing our focus Uh, We see three qualities that Jesus describes here. He talks about being merciful, being people who are pure in heart, and he's talking about being people who are peacemakers. And all of these have a sort of outward focus in the way that we interact and act uh, with others. 
Now this week I was uh, thinking about the, well, I was thinking about the sermon, I was thinking about the Christmas song because it came on the radio. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And you probably know the lyrics. The first line goes, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that repeats, that peace on earth, goodwill to men repeats every chorus after that. It's a pretty somber song. It was written by the famed poet uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, later put to music. Uh, Longfellow was a Unitarian, and he wrote it during the Civil War in the 1860s. Uh, it's a fascinating song. It doesn't belong in uh, like a Christian hymn, hymn book because it's not really a, a Christian song. It's not about the advent of Christ or even necessarily that he had faith in Christ. Um, he was a Unitarian, as I mentioned. But, you know, it does reflect on some of the expectations and hopes we might have during uh, a time like this. Um, for him, it was a meditation that was written after a number of tragedies he'd experienced. He lost his first wife to childbirth. He lost his second wife in a fire. Uh, His son, against his desires, had joined the military and he'd fought in the Civil War and he was uh, injured in a battle and and an injury that really inspired him to write that song. Uh, The mounting grief of all of his losses and his suffering hit him as he was in his Cambridge, Massachusetts home, and he and he heard uh, the Christmas bells ringing out, and that's when he began to put together this song and some of the tragedies and some of the difficulties that he had. You know, he grieved over the the Civil War that was hap- happening at the time. There's a verse that says, "Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannons thundered in the South, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace." On earth, goodwill to men. You know, this war drowning out that sense that there was could be peace on the earth. Uh, He wrote about his personal loss in another verse where he said, In despair I bowed my head. There is no place on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, and so seeing the hatred, seeing the the conflicts that are there seem to strike at that message of peace on earth. And so, you know, as we come to Christmas, we have our own problems and, um, you know, that takes up a lot of our thoughts during Christmas time. We, you know, maybe we struggle with some conflicted relationships or uh, we struggle in our families, we struggle with sin. We, even as we look out in the world, you know, we might wonder what he did and, you know, where is peace on earth, goodwill towards men this Christmas time? Well, when we look, and that just forces us to look back at Jesus' coming into the world. Because he came to set up a kingdom. He came to set up a spiritual a kingdom, a new spiritual kingdom, one with different values, a different way of life than the world. But what's most important, it is a spiritual kingdom with Jesus as its king. The peace on earth that people look towards is a peace that only comes in knowing Jesus and walking according to his pattern of life. Now, Longfellow, he did not believe in the Christian faith. He was a Unitarian. And so when he came to places where peace would come from, he, he didn't quite grasp the lordship of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the kingship of Christ in that. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we need to remember that this is not just a list of, of, um, 
of moral virtues that we need to put on. It's not just a set of uh, religious uh, qualities that we're supposed to have. You know, this is really a description of what it means to have Jesus as king. What it means to have Jesus as Lord. And the life that comes in following him. And the life that comes not only in imitating him, but also obeying him as our God and king. Following Jesus affects the way that we interact with God. It affects the way we interact with the world. It affects the way that we interact with the people around us. This is the only way we can truly please God is in knowing him. And as Jesus shows us, especially in verse 7, he shows us how pleasing God means it's going to affect the way that we interact with others. Now, there are three great enemies to the Christian faith. Those three enemies are the world and the flesh and the devil. I mean, these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, work against us as living a part of that Spiritual kingdom of living a part of God's kingdom. Every one of them works to keep us from being merciful, from the purity of hearts, and from being a peacemaker. I mean, they all work to stir up conflict. I mean, the world uh, tells us tells us to go after your own interests. It says that you have a right to hold that grudge. It says you have a right to pay back. You have a right to protect yourself, even if it means hurting someone else. But it's, it's not just the world out there, but it's also our flesh, you know, that sinful impulse inside of us tells us similar things. Our emotions flare up when we perceive some offense. Our anger bubbles over if somebody doesn't give us what we want. And the devil, well, he wants to kill and divide and destroy. He wants the chaos of broken relationships. He wants that defiled conscience. He wants that conflict. And the consequences of listening to these false messages the ones of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they lead to chaos in our relationships. And they leave us anxious, they leave us conflicted, they leave us divided, they break up our families, it works against the unity and the mission of the church, and it destroys our witness to the world, it sets country against country. And maybe you know this for yourself, maybe you know it right now, maybe you're experiencing it somehow, you know the grief of a broken relationship, highlighted during the holiday, maybe you're contributing to that. And so Jesus gives us these three words, these three uh, beatitudes, to show us how we interact with others in a way that we bring glory to God and we also bring peace. And it's important for us to meditate on today. We probably all know these three things, you know, but it's time to think about all of them in light of what God has said and to reflect on them in terms of our own life and our own relationships and our own obedience and following of Christ. It's because these are the actions of a disciple. These are the actions of a disciple. Now, just a little bit of context I want to work through is, you know, as we've worked through the Beatitudes, and if you have your Bible open, you know, you can follow along where we've been so far. This is our third sermon on these Beatitudes. Again, these eight statements that Jesus uh, makes. These blessed are the statements that Jesus makes. Every one of them has a blessing that is given, a favored uh, a statement of favor of God towards and secondly, a certain group, group of people who do a certain thing, who have a certain quality to them, and then a, and then a promise that goes along with it. So we have a, a statement of favor towards a group of the quality with a, a promise that is connected on them. All of them, all eight of them have that. Um, I've divided up into four different sections. This is our third. The first section, verses three through five, are the attitudes of a disciple. In summary, it's there's humility. 
Humility before God, humility before others. There's definitely humility that says, I don't have all that I need in me. What I need ultimately is what comes from God. Verse 3 through 5. Meekness, poor in spirit, mourning over sin. Verse 6 then builds on those attitudes, those three attitudes, and it says, well, what is the motivation then? Right, knowing these, you know, knowing our weakness, what is it that we want that we're moving and pressing towards? And Jesus says that that is to be hunger after righteousness. Okay, so that's our attitude. Those are our, our, our desire. Well, what is it that we do then? And that's what you see in verses 7 through 9. These actions of a disciple. Qualities that God says are favored by God, each with a promise. All right, so let's look at those today. The first one, in verse 7, Jesus said, Bless are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what is mercy? What does that mean? Mercy is not giving other people what we think that they deserve. That's what mercy is. It's not giving somebody else what we think they deserve. It means withholding our own judgment so that we would not hurt, punish, or neglect others. Um, Instead, we might even try to do somebody good that they haven't earned. I mean, it means being forgiving. It means overlooking faults. It means seeing the difficulty someone else faces and not looking to punish people for their mistakes. Mercy. Now, this is something that's valued by God. Blessed are the merciful, he says. Well, why does God bless this? Well, because it is a part of his own nature. It's part of his own character. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus said this. He said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. That's a description of God's character. God is fully aware of our sins. He is fully aware of our failures. But instead of punishing them, he has made a way of salvation through faith in Jesus. I mean, that's mercy. It's mercy that he forgives sinners. That's what we're told in Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what would God ordinarily do with sinners? You know, they have defiled his image. They have broken his commands. They've, they've failed to do what he's called to do. You know, what is it that's deserved? Wrath, condemnation, hell. You know, what, what did God do to those sinners? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. That's a picture of mercy. But he goes on, if you jump forward two more verses to Romans 5, verse 10, we read this. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. Now, what do we do with enemies? We destroy enemies. We take down enemies. Right? We get rid of them. And yet, what is it that God did through Jesus Christ, but to reconcile himself to them? To give them life. I mean, this is the mercy of God that we see as he builds his kingdom, as he builds his people, and he saves sinners to eternal life. God could have destroyed us, but he reconciled us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I do have a screen for this, but it's a really long passage, so I encourage you, turn uh, forward to Ephesians chapter 2, and just to take the time to meditate on God's mercy from one of the best explanations of it inside of the whole Bible. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And what you see here is what we're like, but then the switch, the flip side that goes into God's merciful nature with his people. Starting in verse uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. 
It says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, after reading this, I mean, we would think what we deserved. It is quite an indictment upon what we are apart from Jesus Christ, right? We see dead, trespassing, sinning, following the course of this world. We'd rather follow the world rather than God. Following the prince of the power of the air, I think we know who that is, rather than God. The spirit of those who would disobey, right? We live in the passions of our flesh. We had our own desires in mind. That's what we were after. You know, and, you know, we can see what is deserved inside of that. We'd understand if God threw the book at us. But verse 4 starts off with the most wonderful words in the Bible. Because you see how God's mercy, how it leads the way. Verse 4, but God, right, very important words, but God, another four more important words next, being rich in mercy, He's not poor in mercy, right? He's rich in mercy. He has plenteous mercy, plentiful mercy to, to give around. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, we see that God has He has turned to us in mercy and given us way beyond ever we could ever ask or imagine. That is true for every believer in Jesus Christ. To be turned from wrath to an object of his mercy and his grace. And the same God's kingdom is a kingdom of those who forgive and those who show mercy. Now let's talk a little bit about the end of the end of Matthew chapter five. Uh, Matthew five seven it says, "Bless the merciful, for they shall receive mercy." Now it might look like our own forgiveness comes in our ability to forgive others, but the Bible is clear that our forgiveness it comes from grace alone. It is not a matter of our works. It's according to God's mercy. We don't earn God's forgiveness. We can't earn it. We are not forgiven because we forgive. But when we follow Jesus, when we know his forgiveness, we must become a forgiving people. And that's what Jesus shows time and again. I want you to turn to another passage. This is another long one. So I want you to turn there. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus tells us a parable to make this point. And he gives us his example. That if God has treated us with such compassion and with such forgiveness, how could we treat others with a lack of forgiveness? I mean, it's impossible to imagine. So who's actually been forgiven will forgive others as well. And that's where the parable in Matthew 18.21 comes in. Uh, Peter comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Then verse 23, 
tells a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a lot of money. I'm not going to go into how much money it is. Maybe your notes and your Bible say it. But it's just a lot, a lot of money. It's, it's a fine that can be given by a court that a person could think, I can never pay this off ever in my lifetime or maybe two or three lifetimes. I just could never do it. So him 10,000 talents. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, see that mercy? Not what he deserved. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's not very much money. You can see the note. Certainly not a lot comparison with what he owed to begin with. That's the point. He owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus' point in bringing out the disciple is that the first servant did not learn the lesson of mercy. Never comprehended the true mercy he had been shown from the king. And how that would make him a more merciful person. One of the great evidences of faith is our willingness to show mercy to others. It's one of the great evidences. Those who have been moved by God's mercy would show mercy to others. Merciful people, they're ready to forgive. Unmerciful people, they will not let offenses go. They want to get back at the person who's hurt them. Whether they actively seek revenge or they hold residual bitterness, uh, they will seek some sort of retribution from the other person. True mercy comes from knowing that God forgives and overlooks our many faults and our sins. They're ready to forgive. Merciful people are also ready to overlook faults. Unmerciful people demand perfection of others. Oftentimes they demand a perfection that they themselves do not have, and they demand it so of others. I don't know if you've ever done this. Like I have um, correct, have you ever corrected a child for doing something that which you never did yourself? Or you don't do now? I, mean, I know I have, and I've been corrected and had to stand down on things. You know, the realization that I needed God's grace. They need God's grace. And be patient with others like God is patient with us. Merciful people are able to tolerate others who are different. They will tolerate those who are different. Unmerciful people think they are right. Different people should be shunned as beneath them. But we know the mercy of God. We know that God loved us even in our separation from him. Merciful people actively reach out to those who are in need. Actively reaching out to those who are in need. Unmerciful person says, well, they're getting what they deserve. They made decisions to put them in this spot. 
But mercy says, I could be there myself, except for God's grace. I don't know their story. I don't have to judge every part of their story. And yet I can still help. Even a merciful person, though, will at times set boundaries with others. That's true. Set requires for requirements for relationships. I mean, part of mercy to another person is to care enough about them to correct them if it needs to be corrected, to address behavior that needs to be addressed. Unmerciful people don't care. They just punish or they push people out of their lives. But mercy leaves a door open to the potential of reconciliation, not letting a person's past behavior lock them out as they begin to make genuine change. Mercy may accept the consequences of life, may just have to go along with natural consequences that go along with decisions. But even when we have to do that with another person, we still can help a person move forward with support and help in other ways. So we need discernment as we apply this for sure, but we certainly need to ask the Lord if we're being unmerciful with people that we need to show mercy towards. That's what Christmas is about. The story of God's forgiveness, his mercy upon us. The son of God entered our sin-stayed world for us. And my hope to you today, all of you here today, is that you would know God's mercy. If you don't know God's mercy, what it means to be forgiven, we'd love to share with you how you can know that forgiveness. So the second quality we see in verse 8, where Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word heart is really important here. Because Jesus is talking about the change that needs to happen on the inside. In the heart. With a heart that has been truly devoted to God in all areas is an act of worship. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount is going to focus on the internal heart and the motivation of his disciples. It's not just the external compliance of them. He's going to point that God is looking more than for more than just an external religion. He wants devoted hearts and lives that are consistent with that. He wants to see consistency between the two. People would pat themselves on the back at that time and say, well, I've never killed anyone. It takes more than that to be pure in heart. You know, what about the way you cursed that guy out? What about the way you've been harsh with your wife? What about the way you've nagged your husband? What about the secret sins? That you've harbored. A person would say, I've never cheated on my spouse, but it takes more than that to be pure in heart. What about the bitterness that you hold towards your spouse? The pornography you use? The way you've withheld your affection from your spouse? And the problem starts in our hearts. A person may say, well, I've never robbed the bank. But it takes more than that to be pure in heart. What about the excessive spending and the discontent that you have with the resources that are yours, that pushes you into more debt. A person may say, I go to church, I give a tithe, and I've been baptized. But it takes more than that to be pure in heart. What about the way you treat God like a vending machine, to get what you want instead of giving him the worship he deserves? What about the way you treat worship as an optional activity for your convenience instead of a divinely given command? I mean, God hates the hypocrisy of false religion. He hates that people would look religious while speaking evil of others, harboring lust in their hearts, and being deceitful in their interactions. I mean, it undermines family faith. I mean, if it's going to show up anywhere, it's going to show up in our family. Our families will see it. I was reading recently how one of the biggest influences to the 
formation of faith within children is a warm, fatherly influence. Mothers are significant, but this was one of the breakers which made a huge, significant statistical difference. Talking sociology and those things, you know, research. Um, Not necessarily God's decree, because we know that God works in any way that he wants to work. But just in terms of research, the power of a warm, fatherly influence is not controlling everyone. It's not controlling everything. Uh, Some people believe and act uh, that they need to control, that they need to push, they need to do those things. And they wonder why their children choose a different path. Parents, especially fathers, they're not called to be rigorous, demanding teachers of spiritual things, but warm parents who share the faith that they know and talk about them with their children. You know, there's a purity of heart that comes along with that, isn't there? There's an effectiveness that goes along with that purity of heart. Now, living the hypocrisy of religion, it leads to bad conscience, it leads to hurt people, and it leads to broken relationships. It's horrible, and God hates those things. And that love of sin, that diverts our attention. It diverts us from the purity of heart. You know, we can never think that taking trash into our lives will not affect the way that we interact with others. And so there's a call to integrity. There's a call to consistency that's there. And Jesus points to the source of our behavior, and that's in the heart. That's the place that matters most. That's the part that all other things come out of. Jeremiah 17, the prophet said this. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the starting point. Blessed the pure in heart. And, and there's a sickness that's there. So we know something has to happen there. Jesus later went on to explain this in Matthew 15, 18 through 20. When he said, you know, out of this sick heart, that's where all of the sick actions come. Jesus said in verse uh, Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles the person. The idea is that it's, um, you know, those nasty things that we say, you know, those come from a heart that's sick. Hearts is deceived, the heart that's corrupt. You know, we can never summarize the teaching of the Bible to be follow your heart. You know, because that's exactly the wrong message. Our hearts are deceitful. That's the source of our lack of purity. Jesus goes on in verse 19 to say, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So what is it we need? We need a new heart. And that's what God promises in the gospel. He gives a new heart. Right When we look at our own hearts, we discover the problems. We discover the impurity. When we come face to face with the law of God, we find out how hard it is. How hard it is to, the, to God's word. Our heart is not devoted to it. We need God. And then God meets that need in giving a new heart. That's what Ezekiel 36 tells us. This is the promise back in the Old Testament. Saying when Jesus comes, this is what Jesus is going to do. This is what my Savior is going to do. This is what we see... Um, appearing on the scene in the advent of Jesus Christ. Verse 26, God makes this promise, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So as we think things from our past and we think that we're ashamed about them, we carry guilt, but we have this reminder that when we believe in Jesus, he forgives our sins He is the one who makes us pure. He is the one who forgives us. 
He's the one who gives us a renewed heart. The past is gone. It's covered in God's wonderful grace. Now, there is only one who is pure, and that's God himself. If you want to see purity, if you want um, to, to see that, if you look for it by faith, you will see God. But you need those eyes of faith. And God gives us a new heart. And as we have that, there is nothing more valuable to do than to protect that heart. Proverbs 4.23. I mean, I commend you to memorize Proverbs 4.23. To regularly consider Proverbs 4.23 for your life. It says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, out of the heart. That's where all the words that we say, all the actions we have, all, you know, it's where we harbor things or where even where there's renewal by the Holy Spirit, where the good things come out of. Guard it. You know, set that wall around that. That's your job is to protect that. I mean, we protect that by keeping our, our, our mind focused on God, by staying away from sin, staying away from the idols of the world. We protect our hearts by guarding against bitterness, by guarding against discontentment. Guarding against the love of the world, we protect it from loving sin. But instead, we focus it on God, on his word, in obedience and service to him. We please God when our profession of faith and our eternal life is consistent. That is the holiness that God calls us to in 1 Peter 1.15, where he says, Be holy as I am holy. God values purity in heart because he is pure. His law, his desires, they are 100% consistent. And Jesus said this is a favorite action, that the person who really wants to be pure in heart will see God. Why? That's because if we keep looking for something that is pure, the only place we can end up is back to God. If we look at ourselves, we see, man, i got a problem, a problem. What's going to make me this way? What's going to make me pure? What's going to make me purity of heart? i got to go back to God, the only one, the only thing that is pure inside of this whole universe. We even love the purity of a baby smile, but we know that that little one will grow up. Where do we look? How can our hearts be pure? Only as God makes them pure. Blessed the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Keep seeking after that purity that can only come from God. So what are some application points when it comes to pure in your heart? Have you seen that in yourself your heart is not pure? That's my first one. Have you seen that in yourself your heart is not pure? Have you been honest with yourself in that? And ask God to give you a pure heart and to take away those sinful impulses in you. I mean, this is the ongoing prayer of a disciple. If you're not a Christian, have you asked God to forgive your sins? To forgive you of your sins, to to cleanse you, to purify you of those sins. Jesus died on the cross to give his life for you for that. Another one. Do you endeavor to devote your whole heart to God? Or are you harboring secret sins? Do you use religious practices to hide your sinful behaviors? Confess those things to God. And a final application point. Do you love what God loves? And you set about to hate what God hates. We need to be people of his word. Learn God's heart for the world. God hates sin and his effects, especially in, in our own lives. We've got to hate that the most. But he loves when lost sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. We make ourselves about that to make his grace known. 
All right, let's look at our third section here. That's in verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker is someone who reconciles others to God and reconciles others to one another. Being a peacemaker uh, begins by knowing peace ourselves. It starts there. We have to know peace ourselves before we can bring peace to others. And the disciple knows a peace that no one else can know, and that's the peace that God brings to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in other words, since we've been forgiven, since we've been accepted through faith in Jesus Christ through what he did, what's the result? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, believer, you have peace with God. No more wrath, no more anger, peace, relationship, acceptance, 100%, because of what Jesus Christ has done with you. And because of that, we have moved from being under God's judgment and his condemnation into a loving relationship. And that affects our whole life in the world, even the way that we interact with others and the way we work to bring reconciliation. We live at peace with others. Romans 12, 17 and 18 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. A mark of a follower of Christ is their desire to live at peace with others. So notice Romans 12.18 says, if possible. (laughs) It is not possible to live at peace with evil, to live at peace with sin, or people who stir up hatred towards us. I mean, the passage is not telling us to let people take advantage of us, or to hide abuse under a peaceable demeanor, or to enable sinful behavior in others, especially if we have the power to do something about that. But we do what we can to live at peace. We refuse to sin against another person. I mean, that is a big step to, to maintaining peace. If we sin against someone, what do we do? We apologize for our behavior, and we seek to be reconciled to someone. If someone sins against God or against us, we may confront them so we can live at peace, and so they can live at peace with God. Jesus shows us the importance of this in Matthew 5.23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I mean, how important is this reconciliation in Jesus? This is more important than worship. Be reconciled to this to your brother, and then come and worship. That's why I'm grateful for every week worship services. It's a reminder, hey, we're coming. We're going to come offer worship. Am I living in you know, are my relationships reconciled? Especially as we come to the Lord's Supper. It's like a double reminder for us. As we come to that table, are our relationships reconciled? Is somebody upset with me because of some sin that I may have done to them? I need to go and resolve that with them. I mean, I know as the Lord's Supper comes up, I'm especially attuned to it. Is there a brother or a sister that I've offended whose address is with me that I need to talk with him about before I come to the Lord's Supper? It's a reminder to us, and Jesus shows us the importance of being that kind of peacemaker with ourselves and other people. We have to take responsibility for our own sin. Right? We are 100% responsible for our own sin. We confess it to God, and we confess it to the other person. So what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 30, verses 3 through 5. Matthew 7, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You know, a lot of times we do this, well, you made me sin, or you did this. That's why I answered that way. And Jesus is saying, no, 
Take responsibility for your own sin, 100%. You didn't sin because someone else made you do it. You did it because you chose it, and you have to take responsibility for it. Verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, believers, they can confess their sins to others because they know Jesus forgives sin. We can be honest with God and others because we know that our sin does not define us, but rather God's mercy does. Jesus' love does. One man said, he said, cheer up. You're way more sinful than you know, and you're way more loved than you can imagine. But we are more sinful than we know. And even if we confess our deepest, darkest sins that we're aware of, our sin goes deeper. And God knows that. And he's still shown us mercy and grace. There are no secrets. And his love is still there. We're more loved than we can imagine. That he would show mercy and grace and pour out his love upon us. And so that we can bring our sins to light to another person when we sin against them confidently. Because we know that God has dealt with them confidently, but also sincerely with an effort to change. A peacemaker who is someone who knows what it means to be peace with God and also sees the value in helping others to live at peace. They help people have peace with God through faith. You know, the Bible calls us ambassadors. We're helping others have peace with God by sharing the gospel with others. Second Corinthians 5.20 we're reminded that we have a place for others to have peace with God by telling them the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the role of ambassador that we have with others is to share others. This is how you can have peace. And so peacemaking, in a lot of cases, is going to lead us to confrontation. Peacemaking does not mean giving in to the whims of others. And that's because it's not confrontation that destroys peace. You know, confrontation is not the great peace breaker. Sin is the great peace breaker, right? Confrontation is the seeking to restore peace. It might mean breaking up an important issue, bring up an important issue. It might mean greater difficulty for a period of time. And while we may have to overlook faults, we have to realize that sin is destructive and there are times that it needs to be addressed. Why does God value peacemaking? He does because it reflects his nature. He is the peacemaker God. He's made peace with his son through Jesus Christ. And Jesus came that first advent to be the prince of peace. And so it's no surprise that a person who makes peace in this world would be called a son of God. You see that in verse 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, so they shall be called sons of God. You know, Jesus was the Son of God who came to make peace with us and his Father. And as we make peace in this world, we look a lot like Jesus as we help people find that peace with God and to live at peace with others. To be part of his family, belong to him, the acceptance of heaven, to be a son of God. I mean, that's the greatest aspiration of any believer. So are you, are you a peacemaker? Is there something you need to apologize for? Is there something you need to take responsibility for? Is your anger or any other sinful actions stirring up conflict between you and others? We need to repent of those actions that keep us away from peace with others. And are you helping others to live at peace with other people? Or are you stirring up conflict 
One of the ways we make conflict worse is by gossiping and by slander. And and through our words about others, we can actually make relationships worse. But our words are supposed to be healing. We're called to be peacemakers. Now, one of the ways that peace has been established historically was, ironically, through conquest. That's what happened at times. One of the best known times of peace in all history was the Pax Romana. It's called the Roman peace. It lasted centuries. Rome had conquered all the area around the Mediterranean Sea and it allowed vast human development, the establishment of roads. In fact, the gospel used those roads to spread throughout all the known world that time. Um, it's called the Pax Romana. But it's just an illustration of what Jesus came to do. Because he came to establish peace, but first, it's our hearts that had to be conquered. Our hearts need to be conquered to defeat the power of sin within our hearts to save us from the devil, to pull us out of the clutches of a corrupt world. He came to make peace between us and God. And to have peace, we needed to have God's forgiveness. We needed to come under his will. That's the only way to have peace, to be reconciled with God. Then we can be reconciled with one another. That's the thing that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow didn't really know. As he wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. He wanted peace on earth, but never really willing to surrender himself To the Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, the Prince of Peace. He correctly wrote at the end of this song, he then peeled the bears, then peeled the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the reason for our hope is not optimism in human beings, is our hope in Jesus Christ the Son of God who became flesh on that first Christmas. You will never know peace, mercy, or purity of heart until you receive Jesus Christ by faith. To know the blessings of God, we must come under the rule of Christ. We need to know his mercy. We need to know his holiness. We need to know his peace. We have to come under his rule and reign. And it's important to see that as the reason why he came. You know, it's, it's... Far from the sentimentality of Christmas, the little baby in the manger came to win our hearts. He came to destroy the power of sin within us. It was like God's secret weapon, you know, to win this war, to win our hearts to himself. So have you made Jesus Christ your Lord? If you slip in the sentimentality of Christmas, you'll fail to see where the real power is, where the real love is, where the real joy is. But Jesus came to make a a new people who genuinely do good, who live under his rule. My call, and his call to us is to believe in him and to know the peace that he brings. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want that peace on earth. We want that peace in our relationships, yet we have too often worked against it. We've refused to forgive. Our hearts have gone after evil things. We've not made peace when we could. We've sinned against you and others. Father, but we know that you give your people new hearts. We know you reconcile us to yourself through Jesus Christ. Father, we know that Jesus Christ came into the world to build his kingdom with himself as king, to give his life that that kingdom would be established. And Father, in that we'd ask, as we look to him, help us follow. Help us follow him obediently. Help us follow him by faith and help us to grow in mercy and purity and peacemaking. Help us to show the kingdom of God in the way we interact with others. 
Help us, Lord, to live in a way that is consistent with that kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you see the closing hymn on the screen.